Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, I am joined by legendary Big Woods tracker, Hal Blood, to recap my recent hunt in Maine and the lessons I learned about tracking deer in the snow. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today's episode is one that I have been wanting to share for a long time. This has been a story I've hoped I would get to experience and hoped I'd get to share someday for years now. I've talked about going up to Maine or somewhere in the Northeast and trying to track down deer in the snow, right? This whole idea of finding a big track and walking it down over miles and miles of big woods terrain. This is just, it just seemed like one of the coolest ways to hunt ever. I think for two or three years, I've been saying, hey, this year I'm going to do it. And then it fell through. And then the next year, I'm like, okay, this is the year I'm going to do it. And then it fell through. Well, finally, in 2021, it actually happened. I did it. I've had this experience. And today I want to share that story with you as well as everything I learned about how to do it. And to help me do it is Hellblood. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast this fall, you probably have an idea of what I've been doing and why I went and visited with somebody like Hellblood. But let me give you the real quick recap. My season this year has been mostly devoted to traveling across the country to hunt in brand new places in brand new ways. And I've been meeting with a local expert in each place to figure out what it is they do. So in this case, I met up with Hale Blood in Maine, and I wanted Hale to show me how he tracks deer down in the snow. So we met up, spent a day together. I followed in his footsteps, asking him a thousand questions, basically doing a podcast in person while we're out there doing the thing. So I got to see exactly how he tries to track down deer in the snow. And then after that day together, I was going to head out on my own and try to see if I could put it into action guinea pig these ideas and pull off this kind of hunt myself. So that's what I tried to do back towards the third, third week of November. I think it was, that's when I did it. And man, without giving away too much, I will tell you this, it was a hell of an experience. I mean, learned a ton, got to spend some really fun days in beautiful country and, uh, 
in short, I'm definitely going to be using these new tactics in the future. So we've got Hale here on the show in just a couple minutes. Hale's going to help us walk through everything we did, share a lot of insight and strategies and tactics that anyone listening to this will be able to use and put into action in your own neck of the woods. If you have big woods terrain like this, if you have snow like this, I think you'll be able to learn a lot. I've also got my two cameramen who were following me around uh, capturing all of this for our new show. So we've got Dylan Lenz and Jimmy Michaels who will be able to add some different perspectives, some look, you know, some context, some color, and fact check me on anything if I miss something. So that's the game plan. Uh, hope you guys enjoy this one. I certainly did. Let's get into my chat with Hail Blood, one of the absolute legends in the big woods deer tracking world, a registered Maine guide, and one of the best out there. You can also learn more about him. We'll make sure to talk about this at the end, but I want to say at the beginning too, he's the host of the Big Woods Bucks podcast, YouTube series. He's got classes. He uh, books guided hunts. He does it all. So if, if you like what you hear today, there's definitely more out there. So now, for real, without further ado, my chat with Hale, Dylan, and Jimmy. All right, now with me on the line to discuss this uh, this pretty epic trip, we've got Hale Blood, Dylan Lenz, and Jimmy Michaels, or, or Jimmer, as we like to call him. And uh, <laughs> Rather than rather than doing like the four people kind of beating around the bush and saying, hey, it's good to be here and people talking over each other, I'm just going to skip that part and I want to jump just right into the really good stuff because there's a lot to talk about on this ex, you know, this expedition of sorts. Um, as, as you three already know and as people listening heard just a little bit about as I introduced this whole idea, you know, the gist of what we were hoping to do on this trip was to come and meet up with you, Hale. Spend a day, learn about what you do and how you do it when it comes to tracking deer, and then you know take everything I learned from that day, and then go out on my own for three more days and try to pull it off myself. That was the hope and the dream. Showing up in Maine, praying for snow, and hoping we could do this thing. Um, now, where I want to start, Hal, is what you were thinking about leading into the trip, because we kind of told you, hey, this is our dream, this is our idea, this is what we'd like to do you know, would you help us out? And you were so kind as to agree. But when you looked at the forecast coming up as we were about to get there, when you were out there hunting yourself in those days leading up to it, how were you feeling about things? Uh, what were you thinking about our chances and, and how we were actually going to pull this off when maybe conditions in our, it seemed like they were a little less, a little less than ideal, right? Yeah. A lot less than ideal. <laughs> <laughs> That's really the gist of it. I was actually, even before that week, I was thinking that, you know, when you talked about, you know, the limited time you had, that makes it tough anyways. Because I tell people, to be fair to yourself, coming up here, a week is a good start. Because most people, you know, they get a week maybe a, to go on a hunt or whatever. But in reality, up in this country, you owe it to yourself to take two weeks straight ahead to have, you know, a decent chance of, you know, killing a buck or even a decent chance of having a few days with a, with good conditions. Cause that's a reality. I mean, you can have, you can have snow, but that doesn't mean it's good tracking snow. And, uh, you know, you've seen some of that, you know, we had a little snow, but it wasn't, wasn't nowhere near ideal. So, and those are days that's, you know, it's high, a lot harder to, to kill a buck on days like that. So, 
that was my first thought was really it isn't much time to try to you know really have a good chance at it but we knew we had to try it anyway so and then when i saw the conditions i mean we we had basically we had pretty pretty dismal conditions the whole season until the end of thanksgiving week we finally got a nice shot of snow kind of everywhere and it made our muzzleloader season week a pretty good week but going into that week i there was only snow in like some of the higher elevations along the borders and you know places like that so i had to go try to find a place to take you because what happens when we get those type of conditions with limited snow it kind of crowds people to those places in other words if if you got two or three mountains that's got snow halfway up them well they're going to have 10 times the hunting pressure because people come up here they want to get on snow so they all run to them mountains so i don't like to hunt those places like that you know when there's other people around so i went and looked for a place we could go where i felt we probably wouldn't have anybody else around and and we didn't and i took a chance on a place and sometimes it gets some of that early snow and sometimes it doesn't but fortunately it it had some which made it at least we could follow tracks i can say that way we could follow tracks yeah now you talked about how even though we were able to find some snow you still didn't feel like it was ideal for this kind of hunt, like what's the absolute ideal situation? What do you, if you could paint the perfect scenario when it came to the conditions, what would that have been? Well, really nice conditions are when you get several inches of snow anyways, that, that covers the ground enough to make it quiet. So if you get, and it depends if it's wet snow, damp snow, or dry fluffy snow, you know, it takes more of the dry snow to, to do that than the damp snow because underneath you, you know, you've got all kinds of sticks in the woods. And this, of course, obviously the snow covers the sticks, so you can't see them. So you're going to be stepping on a lot of them. So you need enough snow to kind of muffle those sounds. And, you know, if it's Wet snow, a couple inches will help because the, the sticks are damp and they don't make as much noise. But dry snow, it's more like four to six inches. You know, if you get four to six inches, it really quiets the woods down. Uh, if it's hanging in the trees, it muffles the sound. The sound doesn't carry through the woods like it would on a, you know, days when there's no snow on the limbs or clear crisp days and uh so that's kind of it you gotta you got it's got to be quiet because you know one of them a deer can hear you for a hundred yards if not you know so mm -hmm. it's just trying to get near one is difficult you know and the other part that makes it ideal especially if you have marginal snow you know just a little snow or it's it's uh more noisy or something is wind. So I, I call, if we get 
couple inches of snow and we got a nice wind with the trees are swaying a little and there's leaves are rattling around, you know, with the dead leaves on the trees. And I call those, those are the buck killing days right there. Cause that is taking away the advantage that, that a buck has, you know, cause obviously they can hear better than us. They can smell and they can, not that they see great if you don't move, but they pick up movement probably quicker than we do. So the wind takes care of all of that because if the trees are moving and the leaves are shaking, that puts some movement in the woods so they don't pick up on your movement as quick. It, uh, the wind and the things rattling around helps cover your noise, and it also makes it so your scent's not going to get anywhere. You know, if it's if it's a windy day, you you scent don't probably get ten feet from you. You know, so that's ideal conditions. That's how you have to paint it out for an ideal day. Well, like I said, a buck killing day. And quite frankly, you don't get very many of those days in a season. Even in a season when there's when there is snow, you don't have those ideal conditions that often. Yeah, and and we we never really had quite that set of conditions uh, in the four days we had. Another thing, though, that I imagine you thought was not ideal, but what did you think when we showed up for day one and you realized there was going to be four of us trying to do this all together? So you, me, and two cameramen. What did you think about that uh, as far as our chances? I thought we were just going to be taking a walk in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely not ideal on that front. Um, So speaking of the cameraman, uh, Jimmer, Dylan, when we showed up in Maine and and you got to see the area we were going to be hiking around in, uh, what what were you thinking about this hunt? What were your thoughts kind of preliminarily, uh, Jimmy, if you want to start about our chances, about what you thought about what we were getting ourselves into? What was your take? Well, growing up in the Midwest, I was I'm very used to more posting, waiting for the deer to come to us. Um, this is this was brand new, having to stalk a deer basically, looking for the tracks, and then going after it. I I honestly didn't know what to expect. I was somewhat familiar with the terrain in Maine, but not not exactly where we were going. Yeah. What about you, Dylan? You know, it was it was beautiful showing up there and you know, hoping we would get more snow, but, you know, having to work with the conditions we had made it tougher, obviously, but just, you know, the idea of stalking a whitetail and then adding a camera person or two camera people, you know, right. just made it seem like a colossal feat um, coming into it. You know, I mean, I, this is the first time I've ever done a spot and stalk whitetail hunt, uh, you know, to try and film it. You know, usually you have, if you're doing it for mule deer or something like that, you have a lot of terrain to play with where, you know, you can hide your sound and your, your sight a lot better. So just coming into it just seemed like a daunting task, but it was pretty exciting to be there. Mm -hmm. And you're right, Dylan, it was just beautiful, you know, especially that first day, like we showed up at night, the first night and we're, you know, I don't think there was any snow down at camp, but we were hoping and Hale, you told us that there was a chance that, you know, there should still be snow up to this other area where you had been walking around the previous couple of days. And we showed up there that first morning and 
it started to get the light out and we could see that yes in fact there was some snow and you could see the rolling hills and the big timber and I mean it was it was everything as advertised it was it was what you dream of when you think of going up into the woods of Maine uh just as a beautiful beautiful first day um but one thing you know, that was interesting to me Hal was the fact that you know you chose to drive right to a place and start hiking um and start hiking before you found any tracks i've talked to some people in the past that prefer driving around until they find tracks crossing a road and then go from there can you talk about your preference between you know driving back roads till you find a track versus hiking to find a track and and what the pros and cons of uh, would be either approach yeah i mean what i tell people is is for every for every buck track you see cross a road there's 10 more that didn't cross a road so your rods are picking up a track in the woods uh basically 10 times better right so that's why i do that i i mean just riding around randomly and and for one thing you got to remember is you got a hundred other people doing the same thing on most of the roads as people that's that's all they do do so your odds of getting a track anyway unless you some of these guys it's like a it's like off to the races in the morning you know it's who who gets there the earliest they're driving around some guys at four o'clock in the morning a good two hours or more before daylight looking for a track and you know then if they find one they camp out on it i guess but i just that makes a long day trying to do that and you know even if you do find one so i just i just never do that it's i can i can almost always find a a good big track that i want to be on in the woods i very rarely find one of those good big ones from the road it's just a it's an absolute bonus if I do, and, and if I do, it's just usually because I found one on the way to where I was going to go anyway. So I just, my plan in the morning is is to get where I want to be at daylight and head in the woods. So I'll be driving, I mean, I might drive 20 minutes from my house, or I might drive an hour, but I just plan on being there at daylight and I'll, I'll check for tracks on the way. If I see a track in the road, I'll get out and size it up. And it's like I said, it's a, it's a bonus. If I find one from the road, uh, that I want to take, you know, a bigger, a big enough one that I want to take. So, um, the only advantage I can see of driving and finding a track driving, there's no advantage because your, your odds are a lot less even finding one. But the one thing is, if you do, you're fresh when you get on it, you know, because I might walk half the day sometimes finding a track. Well, I've put on five, six, seven miles already. So, you know, I'm not that fresh when I get on it to start with, you know, and yeah. so it makes it, it makes it uh, a harder job to try to catch up to that buck, you know, so but that's the only advantage I could see is that you'd be fresh when you got on it. Yep. And maybe sense. it's a it, You could be fresh, but you might not be in shape. Cause I think the guys that go ride the trucks all day long, looking for tracks, they don't get any exercise. So they're not ready for the task anyway, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. That was, uh, that was definitely shocking for me. 
<laughs> I definitely thought we were going to be spending a lot more time driving roads in the truck. And then, you know, for day one, I think we put on what, eight, nine miles or so. Yeah. It was like, I think nine and three quarter oh, miles okay. is what we got. Readjust my expectation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Hale, wh- one of the things I was curious about when I started taking off on my own and was interested in when you started on that first day with us was just how you plan the route you're going to take. So you're going in blind to a place. We haven't found a track yet. You you picked a destination where you wanted to park your truck. And then you said, all right, we're going to take a hike and hope we cross a track. How do you plan a route? How do you think through where you should go walking around to hopefully pick up a track? Um, I always plan my my routes around like a, a big circle, whether I'm still hunting a track, no matter what I'm doing, I, I make a big circle for the day. I, I don't, I don't say I'm going to circle here for an hour and try something else. Once in a while I'll, I'll go in and I'll say, I'll spend a half a day in this spot. Cause that's the size it is, you know, where I think I can find a track, but it's usually an all day thing. I'll, I'll start out for the day. And I'll just walk a huge circle, which might be a 10-mile circle. And it usually consists of either side of a mountain, uh, all the way around a mountain, or maybe it's not a mountain, maybe it's just ridges. But I just kind of want to circle a big area where I think a buck might be coming and going from to get to the does. Because during our deer season in November, that's basically what they're up to is checking on them does, whether it's just before the rut when we start or during the rut. It's going to, their travel patterns are affected by where the does are located. So that's what I do. I just make a big circle for the day. Okay. And I remember that first, that first spot we started, we kind of walked up a old logging road that I think was going to take us up towards this ridge. And then, like you said, you'd mentioned that we'll just kind of walk a big loop up around this area, but it didn't take too terribly long. And we started walking and within less than a hundred yards, we saw some fawn tracks and then, then there was a bigger track, but a pretty old one. And then I don't know, within a half hour of walking, I think maybe we came upon a track that, you know, you thought um, was interesting, but there was one thing that I was curious about before we got to that point. And it was the fact that we were cruising and we were hiking through the woods fast. We were making noise. Um, and I remember asking you, Hale, you know, do we need to be more quiet? Do we, do you want us to be, you know, should we be in stealth mode or, or do we just, just ram through the woods like this, not caring? And you gave me your perspective there, but could you tell us now, you know, what's your take on when you're searching for a track, do you worry about making noise or do you just cover ground? No, I just cover ground. If you, if you're worried about making noise, you can't cover as much ground. So I just, I'm not worried about making noise until I think I'm, I'm near a deer anyway. So there's a lot of space between the deer up in this country. So I don't worry about it. So then we did find that track then. We, we were going fast. We were making a racket. We found a track, and you took a look at it. You kind of walked off the side of the trail, looked at a couple tracks, and you said, I think this one's good enough. Um, 
that moment, this part of the hunt was one that I was most interested in, maybe of all, which is like the analysis of a track. Um, when you were looking at that track, can you walk me through? I guess this is a, this is an interesting. What do you look at first? Do you look at size? Do you try to determine like is this a big enough deer first, or do you look at is this a fresh enough track first? What's the first thing you study before you then advance to the next question? Well, it's probably a combination. I mean, it depends if if it's a new snow, like if it's a, the snow's only been made that day or the day before in the night. It is to me. It is a fresh track, so. I'm going to, I'm going to size it up, but, um, basically it's got to be, you know, I like to, even if it's a, a big track, I'm going to look at it and maybe think about how old it has to be for I'm not going to take it, which is usually two days old. If it's, if it's made two nights before I won't take it. I call a fresh track, a track that's made in the night, the, the previous night. So I'm obviously I'm looking in the morning. And if it was made sometime in the night, whether it's four hours old or 12 hours old, to me, it's still a fresh track. And most of the time I can catch that buck that day. Most, most of the time. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a fresh track. And then I, I, uh, I look for the size and I'm, I'm more particular than most people. So if the people at a, a listening don't don't think don't don't try to go by my expectation of a of a size of a track because you'll get discouraged because obviously the the big old tracks made by the big old bucks and they're the smartest ones to try to to try to kill and that's not the way to begin you know you got to begin on you know a younger buck maybe to you know, to get some experience with it. But I, I look for tracks here and, and our, our, our deer are the Northern Borealis and they have the biggest, the biggest feet than any of the other whitetail species. So, you know, we do have, they are big, big feet on them. So I'm looking for a track that's, I call them a three by three, three inches wide by three inches long, but they're never square like that. They usually if they're three inches wide, they usually at least three and a half long. Some of them four. I have seen them four and a half. So that's the tracks I'm looking for, and they got to be toes. Yeah, got to be round. Neat. You know, you go ahead, Dylan. You took out of your pocket, you just you just grabbed a. Um, I think it was like a lip balm you know, canister, you just threw that in the track real quick, but enough deer, I just, you know, here, you know, us new to this area, just looking at tracks, you know, like a foreign language and you basically just read them like, yep, this is a big deer. Let's follow it. Yeah. Well, I've seen thousands of them, you know, and I've studied thousands of them and I followed thousands of them. So it's pretty easy to see right off. So it's, like I said, it's it's the size and the shape. A lot of the shape is like I said that I want to see that the toes are rounded because those are the old bucks. The pointed toe bucks aren't old usually, unless it's a huge buck that maybe doesn't 
you know, I've seen the ones that they're more, I guess people might call them swamp bucks, but they just live in areas where it's not rugged footing. You know, it's not rocks and stuff in the ridges and ledges that wear their feet. They may have a little more pointed toe, but uh, generally those toes are going to be rounded off by the time they get, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old. They're going to be round. And then the other thing that happens with them, with their feet is the the toes won't won't go together anymore. In other words, the print won't be like a heart-shaped print. There's going to be a space in between the two toes. And the, the bigger that space is, is usually an indication of the older bucks. And I've seen that space between them just in a normal walk be almost an inch. Those are huge bucks, you know, and it's it's because their feet are wearing out, they're sprung out, the tendons are stretched or whatever it is, and they just don't go back together. So I, those are the ones I call square-toed bucks because when you look in the print, the print itself looks square instead of pointed because them two, them two toes are sticking straight ahead. And that's the back feet, which when you look at a track – of a buck, it's just walking a normal walk. You're looking at the rear, the clear print you see is the back foot because they, like any of those animals like that, they they step for step back foot into their front feet when they walk. So you're not getting a clear a clear picture of their front foot, which is bigger. The front feet are bigger than the back feet. On any of the deer, you look at them, the moose are the same way. You you take the feet and compare them, and the, the front feet are much bigger. So the back foot is smaller, so when you're looking at that, you always keep that in mind that you're looking at the smaller of the feet anyway. And when you see that that is really big, then you get a look at the front foot like he stops to feed or turn or do something. When he sticks a front foot out there, you're going to see how much bigger those feet are, you know. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Now, what about for someone who's trying to do this for the first time, like I was? How would you go about identifying the track of a beginner buck, let's call it? A younger buck. What what does that contract look like, and how do you differentiate that from a doe? Well, for a new person, it's going to be hard to differentiate from a doe because, like a yielding buck, he doesn't really his dew claws aren't pronounced as much yet. So I just tell people when you're new at it, if the track is by itself, and it's as long as it's not a tiny track like those fawn tracks we saw, but if it's a if it's a regular sized deer track and it's by itself, just follow it. Because what you're doing is you're practicing anyways. And if you get a look at it and it's a doe, at least you've accomplished part of what you set out to do. You tracked a deer and saw it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're getting some practice. Um, it might be a yielding buck. It might be a spike horn, crotch horn, a little six pointer, whatever it is. If you, if you, a new person, if he caught up to one of those and could shoot it, it's a big accomplishment. You know, you've, you've done something that 90% of the hunters can't do or wouldn't do or haven't done, you know? So that's how you get started when you do, like I said, you don't start out trying to take the biggest track in the woods. I mean, I'm not saying don't take it if you find it, but, but don't walk around and whatever all day long just looking for the great biggest track and sometimes them other other tracks take you to a big track so if you're on a average size track you might come across the bigger one and you can always switch off onto that one you know yeah that that makes sense yeah it's how a day unfolds you know as you go along throughout a day Strange things happen, the the day unfolds, and you never know what's going to happen when you're following a buck. You know, you just, you don't know where he's going to take you. You don't know what he's going to do, but at least he's showing you all that stuff. That's that's the fun part about tracking is you, I call it, you're living the life of that buck. You're getting to see exactly what that buck did. It's written in the snow for you where he went, what he did, if he checked those, if he fed, if he laid down, you you get to figure out all the things about what he did and try to figure out why he did them, you know? Yeah, that was one of my favorite things, was just seeing that story written in the snow. And, and 
it's kind of like pulling a curtain back and you get to see behind the scenes of what these deer actually do. That was, that was fascinating. The whole week getting to uh, walk in the footprints of a deer and see, see that world was, uh, was really cool. Now, one of the things though, that I found toughest to figure out was, was understanding how fresh was fresh enough. Like when I eventually went off on my own, that was something I kept coming back to. I'd look at a track and like, man, was this last night? Was this yesterday? Uh, like that different, I could tell what was like really old and I could tell what was really fresh, but there was this like middle ground where I would be back and forth, him and Han on it. And, and you had talked about when we crossed that first track, you said you want a crispy track. Uh, can you, can you describe again for us what that means? Like what a crispy track looks like in your eyes and, and then walk us through anything else that helps you determine that a track is fresh enough to go on. Cause this is easier said than done. I think. Yeah, that's the hardest part. Aging a track is the hardest part of tracking. Whether you're trying to age one that's <clears throat> made last night or the night before, or you might be trying to age one that's, 15 minutes old instead of two hours old, you know, that's, that's the hardest part of tracking. And that's, that's just takes experience. I can tell you what it looks like to me, but I guarantee it ain't going to look like it that to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Cause you have to, you have to personally see enough of them to get that information into your, into your brain. But a crispy track to me, <clears throat> well, first of all, the track, changes track in the snow changes immediately after it's made it's either it's doing two things it's either it's either melting if it's above 32 or it's freezing if it's below 32 and if it's right at 32 that's the only time that it stays the same for a long time so either side of that the track is changing and usually, once the snow is on the ground, it's most of the time it's freezing. You know, it's below that 32-degree mark. Snow's not melting or whatever. <clears throat> and when you first, they, the track is first made, it's, uh, there'll be dust, you know, there'll be snow kicked or pushed up in front of it, you know, as they drag their feet along or whatever this snow, say it's powdery snow and it's, fluffed out in the front and uh that looks that's why i call it crispy because it looks like it just happened looks like you just threw some sugar on the floor or something you know and it hasn't changed yet you know it hasn't had time to when i say freezing it's really uh it's evaporating like if you if you put a if you have a one of you know all the freezes now are like frost free, you know, if you got your ice box in your in your refrigerator, it's if you leave your ice cubes in the ice tray so long, what happens to them? They just they disappear, don't they? If you left them in there for a long time because they evaporated away. Well they, the same thing happens in the snow, but it actually happens quicker in snow than it does in solid ice. So it'll start to round out like the edge where it steps through the snow. When it's fresh, that edge will be real sharp, like real sharp edge. And then it's going to start withering or, or 
blending in, melt, uh, freezing and, and uh, just rounding over kind of. And it's subtle. It's not like you're going to see it immediately. It's really subtle. And then it's a different length of time if it's 20 degrees or from if it's zero degrees. So it's almost like you've got to have a slide rule or something and calculate that out. But you have to do it in your mind, and, and it's through experience. And that's the only way you can do it is gain that experience. So in the beginning, I guess you're going to guess quite a bit. So yeah, uh, the, other way, the other way you can tell a little bit closer is if, if it steps in the wet ground, even if it's frozen and the snow's powder and it's frozen ground. There's a lot of, in this woods here, there's a lot of wet ground in the woods. So, and little trickles, and they step in the water, uh, wet ground. You'll see how much the ice is made in the track. There might be water in the track. How frozen is it? Is it a half an inch thick? Is it uh, a sixteenth of an inch thick, you know? And then guess by the temperature how old it might be. You know, it's just a guess anyways in the beginning. You just trying to think about it, but, um, that's just the thing you have to do. Yeah. And like you said, it, it seems like just reps seems to be the most important thing. Cause I, when I was starting, I, I realized real quickly that I had never paid this much attention to a track, just to, to a snowy track before. So I just didn't have a set of con, I didn't have a context to compare one to. So I was looking at a track and I'm thinking, man, this, this certainly seems fresh compared to the other things we've seen today, but I don't have a whole catalog of tracks I can look back through over years and think to myself, okay, I saw this one and confirmed it was a deer that was there that day, and I saw this kind of track, and this ended up being a deer that was right in front of me, and you know, I didn't have that experience base to look back on. Um, so to your point, just guessing. It was guessing and hoping, um, and then walking it down and seeing if I was right or not. Yeah. Yeah, the worst thing that can happen is uh, you were wrong and it was two days old, but it took you to a fresher one or, or um, you were right and you went 200 yards and you jumped it. You know what I mean? It's it's at least you're getting started somewhere, right? Yeah. Now, when we found that track, you determined that it was big enough and it was fresh enough to, to go on. Um, and then we started cruising. And one of the first things you told me was, you don't want to be an Elmer Fudd. Can you uh, can you expand on that? Can you talk to me a little bit about how fast you go once you get on a track and and how you determine when you should be going fast versus when you should slow down? Yeah, so if usually when you get on a track, you very rarely get on one that's like fresh, like within an hour. You know what I mean? You, I mean that's if you do, it's like hitting the lottery kind of, you know, but. I just go along and read the track. See, I'm immediately when I get on that buck, I'm trying to figure out what he's up to. So if he's just walking along steady, I got to walk along steady and I got to walk fast because you can't walk as fast as a buck can walk. So if you ain't walking fast, you're still losing ground. So you got to try to gain ground. And usually the way you gain ground is when he he stops to do something, whether he stops to feed, he stops to 
check on some does, make a scrape, rub, lay down, whatever he did to stop. That's the only time you're really gaining any time on a buck. You're not, you're not gaining time other than that. So you got to move along or you'll never catch up anyway. Unless he happened to lay down, you got lucky that way, but you got to, you got to plan you, you got to plan on gaining on the buck so you can get to where he is and hunt him, you know? And if that means jumping him out of his bed, you know, bumped him cause you was moving too fast. So be it. At least now, you know, you're right behind him and you can, you can hunt now. If you Elma Fudd, you know, that's kind of just a cartoon, but you always saw Elma Fudd. He'd be, he'd have both hands on his gun and he'd be going along very, very quiet. And if you do that in the beginning, when you first get on one that's made sometimes in the night, might be two, three, four, five, eight hours old, you're probably never going to even get anywhere near that buck because that buck could be five, seven, eight miles from you when you get started. So you got to make up that, that ground. Now that brings to mind the next thing, which is you're cruising, you're cruising, you're cruising. And and that's what we did. We did a whole bunch of hiking. We followed this track. It took us up a big ridge. It spun around. It was on some does. It seemed like it started going back down the ridge. It made kind of a wide loop, dropped down back towards where we actually had started hiking originally. And you, you were wondering, man, is he going to circle back right over our tracks? And then he turned again and he started going up a ridge up to the top of a, of a knob of sorts. And at this point you said, all right, this buck is doing a textbook thing. We need to slow down. Can you describe Hal, kind of what that was that made you want to slow down and, and what are the what are all the things or what are the different things that would make you say, okay, it's time to shift into a new gear. Let's drop it down. Let's creep. Now we need to be in sneaky mode. What makes you shift into that part of the hunt? Well, that's if I think he's laying down usually. And as a, the, the main indication if he's laying down is usually that he fed because usually they're going to feed before they take the time to lay down. So that's the number one indication, which that buck had done a little bit of it, not a lot, which is, it's not unusual for a buck not to feed a lot during the rut. And this was when you came, it was, uh, you know, probably right during the biggest part of the rut or when it was really getting going. So that buck had fed a little bit here and there, was following does around, checking on them, you know, and didn't get hooked up with one. And then when he, he went down and then he kind of went along this hardwood ridge and abruptly turned and went right up, right up a steep ridge. And that's usually what they do when they're going to lay down so they can look down to where they've been, you know, on their backtrack. That's just classic is most of them bucks are always going to be looking back where they came from with something following them. And up up here in this woods, it's they've been conditioned through being chased by coyotes. So that's a that's their only real natural predator. I mean the bears will eat the fawns and stuff there, but they're not chasing them around in the woods. Uh, you know, a buck or anything. So they learn to watch 
for a coyote coming behind him or something. So they're always watching back. So when they when they do that, usually quite often when they do it, it's already too late. By the time you get to where they turned and went up the ridge, they've already seen you and they're gone. But not always. Sometimes they'll get up over the crest where they can't see over and maybe they feed a little air and lay down and you might happen to catch them or whatever. But that's why we slowed down. I thought probably he was going to be up there. And again, it was in one of them places that wasn't much else we could do about it, but just kind of ease up there and see. So we eased up slowly up over that crest of that ridge. And he hadn't laid down. He was headed for another knob, a green knob. And then I thought he was probably in there. And so we eased over there and, and he didn't stop there. We actually, we had already crossed his track and I didn't pick up on it because it come out of that little green growth where there wasn't much snow. If you remember, there was, Yeah. I don't know, it wasn't even an inch of snow. I don't think it just about barely the leaves were sticking up through it still. So uh, he just, he made a funny loop, just kind of circled around. He must have thought there was a doe in that spot, and he made that loop, and there wasn't. So then he just kept going. Remember, from then on, he just kind of got on a straightaway mission, you know. Mm-hmm. And he kept going along the edge of some water for ways, and then finally made his way into another thick kind of, cedar pine patch of some kind i can't remember what it was and we lost snow in there uh what do you can you talk about what you do in that kind of situation you know in this case we just decided to pull the plug because we'd been going a long ways and and we lost the track in there but you there were a couple other places where we had lost the track and you did some different things to try to pick it up again where you tracked it in the mud can you just talk about the different ways you try to pick up a track again when you lose it in a spot like that? Yeah. Well, like I said, it's, it was so marginal snow. If you remember under the green trees, there was barely any anyway, cause it, you know, it catches up in the limbs in the hardwoods, it gets down to the ground, but in the green, in the green trees, it's which up here is spruce and fir and cedar and stuff. But, but, uh, Sometimes you get in these big patches that there's no snow underneath and you just have to circle around. He had to come out of there, so you just you circle and pick up the track. Instead of trying to stare at the ground and see if you can see the track in the leaves or the needles or something, it's easier to walk right straight through the way you can see some snow and then and then uh pick it up there. But I knew when he headed down into that corner where it was all a big a big expanse of that green growth i knew when he got down in there we were gonna probably have trouble because there's in there there was nothing to go by it was a huge that piece of woods there was probably a half a mile wide probably at least a half a mile by a half a mile and he headed into there with and there's no way to see. You can't even the ground in underneath the those softwood trees, conifer trees. You can't. They don't even make a track. It's all just those needles from the hundred years worth of needles stacked up like it's it's just hard. 
It's not like leaves punched up where you can see the leaves curled up in the hardwoods. It's not like that. So once you get in there, I said, we ain't going to, there's no way to try to figure out even where he's going in here. And it's the other part of it is so thick in there. If you remember, you couldn't see 20 feet most places. Oh yeah. You ain't going to, you're not going to get him anyway. The only thing you can do I mean, I don't give up on a buck that goes into that stuff. If there's snow where I can see where he went, I'll just try to, I'll just jump him and push him out of there and try to get him somewhere else where I can get a look at him. But uh, there just was no snow to do that. So we we turned so, and went up, figuring maybe he just went in, searched around, and came back out again. So we just stayed in the hardwoods and ran the hardwood ridge above that green patch, you know, hoping to find his track or another track, you know. Dylan, did you have a question? So one thing that I'm, yeah, I'm just curious how, you know, when you're closing it in and you think that you're, you know, actually, you know, have a chance of spotting this deer what are you imagining doing typically are you expecting to find him in his bed or are you looking for him up and feeding are you just looking for antlers through the brush you know i'm just curious to get in your head here and you know imagine what you're expecting well i guess it depends what the buck is doing if 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 i know he's up on his feet like i've already jumped him or maybe i sometimes you'll come to a bed and he just got up on his own and he's he's off again. I'm usually in them, that case, I'm expecting to see him on his feet, feeding, doing something. And, uh, if I expect that he's laying down, I play it a little different because you've got to usually play it slower. If I think if he just fed around a bunch and went in on this knoll, or something like that, I'll go very, very slow, and I'll just—I might just take a step, look all around, take one more step, scour around under, behind, and around all the blowdowns, and yeah, I'm looking for an antler or a, an ear, or a patch of brown, or anything. If he's laying down, if he's up, and are you? Ooh, Go ahead. Are, are you catching these deer? Are you catching them unexpected? You know, are they ever, you know, just doing their own thing? Or are they typically on to you as you're closing the distance? Do they know something's after them? Um, depends. Every situation's different. Depends how much you, how many times you've jumped them. If you've jumped them a few times and they know something's behind them and they're going to be looking all the time and you just got to try to catch them uh, in the right place at the right time and see him first. Or maybe, I mean, I don't care if he's standing there broadside chewing his on a piece of stick or something. I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking to get a chance. I shot, whether it's, he just took off and he's running. I don't, doesn't make any difference to me. You know, I just want to get that shot. You know, I mean, obviously if he's, standing there or something or laying down, it's going to be an easier shot. But um, when you get used to this type of hunting, a running shot is not a big deal to take, you know? Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit, Hale? Just, 
you know, how you prepare yourself to take these shots that seem like almost, almost always they're quick. It's a, it's a very short window of opportunity when you get into, I think you called it your death creep when you really think you're getting in close to one and you're slipping in real careful. How, how ready are you? Do you have your, are you holding the gun at the ready? Are you, you know, uh, what are the specifics you're doing and what has helped you to improve your chances of being able to pull off a shot in such a little tight, narrow of time and sometimes tight space too? Well, a lot of that is just practice and experience. And uh, my practice, quite frankly, was when I was, I started rabbit hunting with my grandfather, had beagles, and uh, I started that when I was 10 years old and shot thousands of rabbits running. And they run like a deer, kind of, you know, they just, they're, they're bounding, you know. Dogs are chasing them, and you just get experience doing that with your your swing, your follow through. You're looking for the openings, and that's experience. So, but that's I mean, I I was fortunate to to grow up in that manner where I had that experience already going into it. Most people probably don't have that kind of an experience. So, but yeah, I go into it if I'm. I think one's laying there and I'm going to get a look at it, or I think he's right here handy. My guns in both hands, ready to go. And, uh, I usually, my rule of thumb is like, if I can, if I can see him for two jumps, I'm probably going to get a shot unless it's just too thick, you know? Uh, usually the, if I, I should say I get two jumps where I see him for two jumps. So if I see him make a jump, I can get my gun in action in one jump. And then I can usually get my shot off by the time he's made that second jump. So yes, that's quick. Yeah. So, but it's just practice. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the things that was most concerning for me as as I I don't have that experience with running shots. I was kind of raised um my grandpa viewed that as something that I should not do. So I was like beat with a stick if I ever considered that basically <laughs> metaphorically. Um so coming into this, I was thinking, man, how am I ever going to get a shot in this situation? That that seemed like that was going to be the real real crux. Like that was going to be something that would be particularly challenging if I ever made it to that point. But there, there's one other thing that we haven't touched on yet that was pretty important, it seemed like, which is let's say you go into this death creep, you move into where you think he's bedded, and you do bump him, but you can't get the shot. And he goes running off before you see him or before you can get a shot off, whatever it might be. That buck runs off. Uh, you told us that this is one of the things that you do that a lot of people don't that you think is particularly important, which is you take a sandwich break. Can you talk about your infamous sandwich breaks, why you do that, why that's important, um, what you're doing with that whole thing? Yeah. So a long time ago, I learned through experience that I was just chasing bucks around all day because I would jump them and get, you know, keep right after them. And they're always looking back. And you'll come to a place with the track standing there, turned around, looking back at you, and the track's running again. 
So I just thought that I had to outsmart them. I had to be a different thing to do. I could see that they were waiting. So, and nine times out of 10, they do, but one out of 10 doesn't. But I always play the odds anyways. So I found that when I'd go right after them, I'd go maybe only 100 yards, maybe 300 yards, whatever it was at distance. And there would be tracks where the buck was standing there, turned around facing back where he came from, kind of like treading around, kind of waiting. So I said, well, that's what they do. They're waiting to see if something's coming after them, so I'm not going to come after them. So I, I tried 15 minutes, and that didn't seem to work. So once I started waiting a half an hour, it it seemed to work pretty well. And then that's one thing I wrote my first book. I had more people comment on that, more experienced hunters that, that have killed lots of box tracking and stuff that they never thought of it. And and I had a lot of a lot of people comment to me that, that that's why they killed their first buck tracking was because they waited. Because what happens is that buck usually, unless you out and out was in their face and and really frightened them, that buck probably only heard a stick snap, maybe caught a little movement through the through the woods, through the limbs or something. He doesn't know what that is. He's just going to get out. He He's not going to stay there. He's going to get out of the way and see what happens. And he might only go 100 yards and wait 200, 300, 500. doesn't matter. He's going to get off where he feels comfortable, and then he's going to wait and see if anything's following now. If you think about it, if a coyote's following them, usually that's going to be immediately. You know, when they get chased by a coyote, they get, you know, the coyote's going to be running after them. So if that buck stands there for 15, 20 minutes, half hour, whatever, and nothing comes along, he just relaxes again. He's not afraid. He just, he's kind of really basically forgot about that experience. There's something bothered him and he's going to go about his business. Sometimes they lay right back down. Uh, Sometimes if it's later, like it's late morning, early afternoon, they won't lay down again. They'll just start going about their business because they've rested enough. They might start checking does, might start feeding, but whatever he's doing, he just starts doing it again. That's the best time to kill a buck. The first time laying in his bed's not the best time because he's looking back. He's hard to, you know, he's that it's the hardest time to get him. Those are the times. The only time you're probably going to get him that way is on one of those buck killing days where you've got some wind and maybe it's snowing and there's just some action going on where he's he's blind. And usually them kind of days they don't want to run off as much because. They they feel vulnerable anyways because of the wind. So that second time, I've killed more bucks after I've jumped them than than killed like when I jumped them or killed them laying in their beds in the beginning or something. So that's why I do it. The only exceptions I have to that is I only do it once, 
if it's the first time, and I make an exception if he's if he's with a doe. If he's laying with the doe when they take off, I just ease right along after him because he's going to be distracted with her. He's probably, sometimes they get split up and he's going to try to get back with her or something. Uh, so I'll go right after them because he ain't thinking about looking back as much. She might be, but he's not. Interesting. That's very interesting. I encountered something like that and I, I guess I didn't think of that aspect of things but uh but yeah i guess i'll wait to dive into that until we start diving into that particular hunt a couple days later um i guess from that point if, if we jump back into our day one we we didn't bump one we tracked one forever but then we walked and walked and walked after we lost that first track to try to find another one and we never did find another one worth going on um, we just cruised for a long time. And, and like Dylan said, we ended up covering almost 10 miles. Um, I, I want to get Jimmer. I want to get Jimmer's perspective on that part of things. Just talk to me, Jimmer, about your thoughts on how Hal hikes through the woods, how fast he goes, how far he goes. Like what, what did you learn about what it takes to walk a buck like this down after now spending a day following around one of the best in the business? Oh gosh, even if I wasn't carrying a camera and a backpack full of camera gear, I still don't think I would have been able to keep up with Hal. That was <laughs> that was that was impressive and inspirational. Um he knows what he's looking for. It's it's funny hearing hearing you talk right now, Hal. Uh it's like getting the 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 cliff notes to a really big book. The big book is the is the actual hunt. You have to read the book, you have to go do the hunt. The cliff notes are all the things that you're telling us right now. And and I think like Mark was saying, he'll talk about here in a second, but everything you're saying, we ran into. Um, even the the looking at the the prints, the um, what direction are they going? Are they are they bedding down? Did we spook them? I mean, it's just from a camera guy's perspective, trying to tell the story visually, seeing all those things come together was was truly fascinating having experienced it first day with you and then we went off on our own for the next three days but um boy covering that ground that was i'm glad i had a couple of my own hunts prior in <laughs> the month prior and uh uh i felt like i was maybe in uh, halfway decent shape but still um kudos to you hal yeah yeah i mean I'll give you kudos as well, Hal. You you can put the pedal to the metal and you can walk a long ways. I consider myself one of the best long distance hiker and walkers in the mountains that I know and that I hang out with. And I think most of my camera crew can attest that I can I can get after it pretty good. But you were you were cruising, and I was thinking to myself, I I hope I can get around half as well as you do uh, when I have as much experience as you do because. Uh, you don't seem to have slowed down one bit. I'm guessing from what you were doing when you were 30. It's my guess. It was a, a good pace out there in the mountains. Well, in my mind, I'm still 30. That's my problem. Sometimes <laughs> I I get going like that, and in the end of the day, walking out, I'm like, "Ooh, I pay for it a little bit." But <laughs> yes, I can. I still i i'm I'm thankful that I'm still able to to go like I can at my age and. I can tell, you know, like I, I need my rest at night. I, I got to rest my legs and stuff, but Hey, I'll be 65 here in, in May. So, uh, I think I'm doing pretty good for that. Yeah. Being that age. 
I'd say so. So uh, we, we we ended that day having covered a bunch of ground but never did pick up another track. And the plan was the next day I was going to go back out there on my own um, and bring Dylan and Jimmer with me and see if I couldn't get on another one. Now what I want to do is this, Hale. I kind of want to walk you through what happened over the next three days, at least the highlights, the most important parts, and then kind of pick your brain on you know, did I make the right decision here? Did I make a mistake there? Would you have done something differently? I mean, as I describe some of these things, feel free to jump through, jump inhale if you think I did something wrong or if you want to, you know, share something you might have thought differently in any of this. Um, I'm really curious. It would have been really neat if somehow I could have had you just follow me around the next three days and like critique me as I went or be, <laughs> or maybe not even tell me in the moment, but just be taking notes. And then at the end of the day, I'd come back and we'd sit down and you would walk me through all the things I screwed up. That would have been the best. But uh, this will have to do as a, as a closest way to learn from, from what I did, right or wrong. Um, so Dylan and Jimmer, fact check me here. If there's anything I forget to mention, if there's anything I should have expanded on, if there's anything different, feel free to jump through here or jump in here as I describe at least the main points. Um, Deal. So day two... Day two starts off, we start at the same beginning point, and right away one of the first things I was not sure about was what's the route I want to take? Like how do I how do I want to go through this huge expanse of open land that we have available in front of us? Um, and my initial thought was, okay, I remember yesterday we had walked a lot of different country, but the very most deer sign, just tracks, you know, seemed to be up towards the top of these ridges where there seemed to be some old cuts and more hardwoods um, that just seemed to be more diverse terrain and, and seemed to be a lot more tracks. So I thought, well, let's head up to the tops of these ridges where that most sign was. And then I'll take a wide swing to the West, which would take us into new country while most of the hiking we did the day previous had been to the East. Um, so that was my strategy was basically get up high where most of the sign was the day before and then get into a new section of it. And we started hiking, just cruising, covering country. And pretty quickly, within like a half hour, um, we came across a track that was like a maybe track. And this was one that I looked at it and I, I was thinking two things. It seemed to be a maybe on both fronts. It seemed like this could be fresh. This, this is probably an overnight track, I thought. But I just didn't know, like, is this a big track? Like, is this a buck track? Is this just like a good doe track? I remember thinking, like, you can see dew claws, but it's not big, big. And I kind of waffled on it and thought, you know, is it big enough? I don't know. Is it super duper duper fresh? Not that fresh, but it's probably, you know, it, it was new from when we came through there last. So it happened at least because um, this was still along the trail that we'd walked the first day. So I knew it was at least from the night at some point. And ultimately, you know, I decided, nah, let's not walk on this first one. It just doesn't knock my socks off. Let's keep going. I'm sure we'll find something better. And what did we do, Jammer? From there, I mean, we hiked, I think, four miles or something. or We hiked a bunch um, and didn't come across a single other new track after that. Isn't that right? I mean, I feel like we'd put a bunch of miles on after that. Yeah, and we we're yeah, like you said, we we went in same spot the day before with Hal, but we were definitely covering brand new ground. Um, and that yeah, and that first track yeah, we, we just didn't feel it and uh, moved on from there. And yeah, it from there I think we burned a lot of footage of you just walking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
That's covering ground. A lot of walking footage. A lot of Mark walking and a lot of looking in the snow. You know what's pretty funny is we got back one of these nights. I don't know if it was day two or what day it was, but we got back to our little cabin, and uh, we have a producer out there with us, this guy Andreas, uh, we all know and love. And Andreas would be waiting at camp all day for us, and then when we get home, he'd be asking us, did you talk about this? Did you see this? Did we get coverage of this? Did we make sure to get footage of Mark doing this and this, blah, 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 just kind of making sure we checked all the boxes that we want to check. And I remember one night, he's like, do you guys feel like you have enough footage of Mark walking? Do we have good walking Mark footage? And I think everybody just laughed. Just laughed. <laughs> Terabyte of Mark walking footage. Terabyte, yeah. <laughs> many, many, many hours of Mark walking. Um, but I'd say I'd say the highlight of day two was four hours later or four miles later. It was one of the two. I, I remember seeing four on my track. I was tracking all this on Onyx. We ended up coming across a track that seemed fresh-ish enough. And at this point, we'd been walking half the day. Hadn't come across anything else we wanted to track. Now I see one. I'm like, man, this is probably a buck, and this is probably somewhat fresh. We should start tracking this one. And so we end up tracking this doe, this this deer, and it like looped around a couple times and went here and there and everywhere. And I remember thinking, man, this is fun. Like I'm finally on a track on my own. I'm actually tracking one. I'm doing the thing. Um, this is pretty cool. You know, the previous day I was following you, Hale, and you were making the decisions and you were analyzing the tracks and finding it when we lost it. And so I didn't have to really work in that way, but now I was actually doing all the work, doing all the thinking, picking it up when I get lost in other tracks, kind of sorting through the, the puzzle when you see all these different things come together and you're trying to read the story of what actually happened here and where did he go and I'm thinking this is great. We're going to walk down this buck and we're going to do the thing. And then it starts circling back to the west. And it keeps going more and more in the direction that we started. And I think it was maybe like 20 minutes, 30 minutes before we got back to the trail. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this deer is going right back to where we started. And I started getting this little whisper in the back of my mind saying, what if this is the same track that you saw at the very beginning of the day? And sure enough, 20 minutes later, this deer ended up being the original track we saw at the very beginning of the day. And now I've followed his track all the way back to the beginning. I've wasted two-thirds of the day, and now I'm right back to where I started at first light. And realized that this is the buck I'd passed up on, you know, eight hours earlier or whatever it was. Um, Hell, what do you think about that? Because eventually we we ended up following that track for a while, and then... I lost it somewhere, and then that was our day. And I was kind of upset at myself that I passed on that one and now wasted the whole day, spent all this time. What do you think about how I approach that? Is that something that's ever happened to you? Um, what do you think when you hear that? Funny you should say that. Because <laughs> what you got out of that day was a bunch, was a lot of practice, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got you got your practice in. And uh, you learn that that can happen, and it can happen to anybody because it happened to me. I I do that not I don't shouldn't say quite often, but it happened to me again. One of the days, actually, it was the first day of muzzleloader season this year when we had the good snow. I was lucky enough. I had my cameraman with me, and and I I cut a track from the road where I've never cut a track before, never, never really seen a buck 
track crossing there. And uh, it came out in the road and uh, walked down the side of the road, dragging his feet. And I could see a another mark in the road. And I go, what the heck is going on? I had to look at it. Well, there was a stick laying there. Well, when he come out of the woods, he must have come up through some brush. And he snapped a stick off in his antlers about four feet long. And he dragged it with his antlers down the road about 50 yards before it dropped out of his antlers. So now I'm thinking he must have a pretty decent rack to do that. And uh, it was one of them square-toed ones. But anyways, we jumped right on it. So we got right on it at pretty much daylight. And when it, when it went in the woods, it came to a – well, first, it, when I first got in there, there was another track coming back, almost like back on itself there. And I just, in my mind, I just discounted it as being the same one, just just because of the way it came back. And I don't know why, I can't think about why I did, but there was a reason that I didn't even think that it could be the same one. But But I went a little bit further, and I came to a kind of an open bowl there, and I, and another track came across, and I looked at that one, and I go, because if you if a track is crossing another track, you stop before it crosses, and you sometimes you can see where they where they cross past the two tracks, which one is fresher by which which way the snow is dragged into one track or the other, and it it didn't drag any snow in, so I couldn't tell. But I just took a hunch the way it went up. It went up, and I could visualize that it looped around. And it was exactly the same size track. And I said, that's the same buck. I'm pretty sure making a loop. But in any event, it's getting out of this little spot. So I took it, and it went back across the road about a quarter of a mile above where I'd parked the truck. And it got in a completely different piece of woods. It went up through some new cuts, wandered around, followed a doe, and it headed up on this mountain. So in my mind, I'm like, yeah, he's going to be up on that mountain somewhere. So he kept on it, kept on it, kept on it. And it went up on the off the end of this mountain, and it still headed in kind of a westerly direction. And then all of a sudden, it got to where there was some more deer, and it it kind of turned back towards the logging road. And the next thing you know, it crossed the logging road, and there was a bunch of other deer tracks there. And it crossed, so I crossed it, and it, and I'm now I'm probably I'm about a mile. He crosses the road about a mile from the truck. And now he's headed back over in the country he was headed in the first place. So he goes over on these knobs and he's I can he know what he's doing. He's checking all these green knobs for does. And there was I crossed paths with another smaller buck track in there and some does and and he kept going and that's what he was doing. He was searching, searching, searching. Then then he starts to swing back east. And I start thinking to myself, could this possibly be the same buck 
I was thinking it might be where I cross paths with it in that little hardwood bowl. I said, could this be the same buck there? And I go, I can't believe it would be. So I stayed on it. Next thing you know, I cross this old, we call it a winter road, like a grassy road. And he got down and through these beaver bogs, doing the same thing, just doing his thing. But he's oh, he's he's headed east, but he's he's a half a mile back in there. And all of a sudden, he swings back south, and now he's making a circle. And now, like I'm kind of saying to myself, I can't believe it is, but there's a good chance this is the same buck. And he was. He started chasing the doe around in one place and make a long story short, four hours later, just like you said, I'm right back in. I wasn't in that hardwood bowl. I was back where I discounted that first track. I hadn't been in the woods 50 yards when this other track come back across that I completely discounted that one. The one when I made a decision in the bowl, it was the right decision. But I dis I didn't discount that first one, or I did discount it. Well, he had crossed the road like not even fifty yards from where he came out dragging the stick. He'd gone up in he'd he'd come out and made went back in, made that little loop, went made the whole great big loop and was back across the road again. And it was 11 o'clock when I got back there from 7 to 11. And he went across the stream and up on these other bluffs. And I said to myself, well, that's a good place. He's probably going to be over there anyway. Well, the time we got across the stream and got over in there, there was moose tracks and deer tracks all over his tracks because it had been half the day. And the moose were feeding all through there. And all I could do was I kept circling successively bigger circles to try to find his track because it'd be completely obliterated with other tracks between mostly moose. But there was some deer in there too, stomping around. And I finally picked up a track I thought was his. And I didn't go very far on it. It was fresh. And I see it. I see it go, but I couldn't see the head. And then I could see where it had been in there feeding and stuff. And it didn't look like I decided it wasn't the same one. It was another one, pretty much the same size track because this one I was on, he dragged that stick out there and he didn't go through any narrow openings with his antlers. He'd walk around narrow stuff. And this other one I jumped was, he was just come through some thick stuff feeding and stuff. I go, that ain't the same buck. And I made another big circle over a half a mile circle and couldn't get his track coming out. Now it's three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, I guess I'm done for the day. So same thing. It was like, you can't call it a wasted day because you learn some things. You know what I mean? You saw yeah. some things, you learn some things, but it does happen. So you didn't do anything wrong, but it's actually quite common that they make them big circles and end up, back again yeah well you're right about the practice thing i definitely felt like even while i was doing it and thinking to myself like after we lost it picked it up again when it looped back through i thought well 
at least this is practice. Probably will never catch up with this deer, but just doing the thing, interpreting the tracks, following them, getting through tough spots where it disappears or gets confusing. I mean, I, I could definitely see how this is a skill that takes a while to develop and, and doing it that day felt really good. Um, even though we never, you know, even came close to anything. Um, but it did set me up a lot better for the next day. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. On day three, um, had been talking to another guy in camp, and he'd mentioned he was going to go to a new area this day and said we were welcome to follow him to drive up to this zone, and he could kind of you know, drive us into a general direction where he thought that'd be a good idea for us to explore. And then he would keep driving driving and go find an area he would walk. So we end up driving up to this general area. We get down a logging road. There had been a little fresh coating of snow overnight. And so there's actually some snow on the road. And sure enough, he stops the truck, hops out, and we look at this track. And there's a buck track and a doe track crossing the road, seemingly, you know, relatively fresh had to be fresh since that snow had just come overnight and we talk about it and decide hey you know what not a big big track but a a buck um let's do it so he kept going to find a different place and then me and jimmer were going to get on the track because this day i decided to bring just one cameraman because it seemed pretty impossible to pull it off with two so dylan well you just stayed back at camp and slept in and ate pizza and just relaxed all day isn't that right 
Yeah, it was it was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but me and me and Jimmy were gonna get after it, so we parked the truck. Uh, we both were so excited about uh, having a fresh buck track that we both needed to use the bathroom uh, at the same time. <laughs> so we're like, all right, you go on that side of the road. I go on this side of the road. Let's take care of that. And then uh, let's follow this track. So it gets light and we get on the track and, and really it looked really fresh. I mean, it was like fresh powdery snow and the track was crispy. I mean, it, it looked. You, oh, it, had, you, it had to be the freshest we'd seen since we got there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, hell, when you said it looks like someone threw sugar down, it was that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, right away we started walking it down and, and within 15 minutes of walking, I already started thinking, do I need to be slowing down? Do I need to, could this deer be right up here? Uh-huh. Um, and we, we tracked it down through an area that had been cut a decent bit. And it wasn't like they were on a tear. They were kind of milling around, and then they'd walk straight for a ways, and then they'd kind of spin around and mill. And there was different deer that kind of popped in and out a couple different times. Um, but we came up over this ridge, and we we're there was a valley down below, and then another ridge that came up the other side. And I remember thinking, I wouldn't be shocked if this buck was in, within view of this. Um, like, I don't really know, but it just seems like he could be I could be within sight of this buck already. It just seemed like we weren't very far behind at all based on what we were seeing. I mean, the tracks weren't frozen. Um, you know, you're seeing the light tufts of snow that he kicked up when he drags his toe and all that kind of stuff. And sure enough, we, you know, I, I basically slowed down a decent bit. Now I was just kind of ready. Um, and go down the ridge, drop down to the valley, follow the tracks up the other side of the ridge. And then sure enough, there's a bed on that opposite ridge. Mm-hmm. Now there wasn't two beds. There was just one bed and I could see the one bed and then I could see what looked like a couple jumping, you know, sets where the, like the tracks showed that he jumped out of the bed, jumped again, jumped again. Um, and so I saw that and thought, okay, we probably bumped this buck. And so we decided to sit down and do our sandwich break thing. Now this hail is a question I have for you. I never did see the dough bed. So I could see doe tracks, and I saw the buck tracks, and I saw a single bed. Um, and then I assumed that we had bumped him and did the sandwich break. But then later in the day, I started thinking, did I not bump that buck? Was that buck actually, did he lay down for a second, and then the doe kept going, and then he just jumped up to go follow the doe? And they kept on going their merry way. They didn't run a long ways after after that jumping. I remember seeing the jumping tracks, and then mm. there was a little bit of running for maybe like, I don't know, 50 yards, maybe 100 yards, Jim, does that sound about right, maybe? Yeah. And, and exactly. then they were back to just, like, walking along. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, what do you think about that, Hale? Should I have taken the break like I did, or should I have kept pushing in that case? I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I think um, more than likely, if you saw, if the two sets of tracks were running from there, that that one of them just got laid down. The other one hadn't laid down yet. Maybe it was feeding or whatever it was doing. And you just happened to come along at that minute, you know, before they both got laid down. That's what I'm thinking went on there. Okay. And in which case, taking the break was the right move. Uh, 
what did they when they just did they just go about their business and see if you if it's a buck and a dough like I said I wouldn't have taken the break necessarily uh, depending on the time too a lot of times I'm like well it's nine o'clock I or eight o'clock I'm not going to take a break yet I'm going to keep hunting here and see what happens but Sometimes I just take it because it's around 10 anyway, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was early. It, we hadn't been going for more. It was an hour or less into the day, and I, I saw that bump. And so uh, I took the break not having remembered or known about the doe with the buck being a different situation. So I just thought, okay, we bumped the deer. We got to sit down, even though we hadn't been going more than an hour. Um, so we took the 30-minute break and then picked up the track again. And, you know, like I said, I think we had like some running tracks for a hundred some yards or something like that, give or take. Um, and then they basically were just walking again and they were walking on a mostly straight line. They kind of did a straight shot and then a little curve. And we followed them, you know, from that, they'd been on this Ridge Hill when they left the bed, they went downhill down into a flat, like at the bottom of the Valley and they walk through a bunch of old cuttings, you know, I don't know, a couple of year old cut or something, and a bunch of piles of slash and tops and all this kind of stuff. And they basically did a long straight shot. They crossed back over the road that we drove into and started heading towards the mountain, towards a, a big mountain ridge that ran along the north section that we were hunting. And then they crossed a creek, went up this ridge, and then started going straight up the ridge. They go straight up the ridge. We get to what I think is like two-thirds of the way up or something, and then they hook to the right. They take a hard right turn and start side-hilling across the ridge. And when that happened, I thought to myself, okay, this seems like this seems like this. these deer were heading up the hill, and now they turned. They're going to look for somewhere to bed soon. So I start slowing down. I start thinking, I bet you any moment now we're going to come across a bed or we're going to see these deer run. At least it was, we're getting closer to that. But we end up following this. Um, we end up following it side hailing for longer ways than I was expecting. Without them like stopping and feeding, I was look. I was. I kept on looking for signs of them stopping and feeding. I kept looking for signs of them stopping and milling around or spinning around or changing direction that might indicate like they're getting ready to bed or something. Um, so I would say at this point I was like medium pace. I wasn't creeping, but I wasn't cruising either. Um, and what they did is they, they side hill for ways and they kind of went up a saddle and then turned. And then instead of going over the saddle and down the other side, they turned up and continued going higher up this ridge. Um, and this is when they got into some thick green stuff. And as soon as I saw they're going to this thick green stuff, now I thought, okay, now they're definitely going to bed. Like this looked like this had to be where they're going to bed. And I remember looking at Jimmer and saying, okay. We are going to slip into ultimate death creep mode. They can be anywhere around here. Um, I really believe like they're up here. And just at that moment, like a little bit of a breeze started blowing, and I thought this is perfect. Like we couldn't have asked for better timing for this breeze to start because I'd been worried about our sound, of course, that whole time. And it, it just seemed ideal. And so I, I kind of was holding the gun at the ready, and I, we just, I mean acted as if there was a buck within 50 yards or within a hundred yards. I was, you know, 
taking just the slowest creeps and I was crawling underneath branches and we were in some really thick stuff where you couldn't see it all unless you were down on your knees and looking underneath it. And we were crawling through things, climbing over deadfalls, under deadfalls, belly crawling under branches, um, going through this stuff that just screamed bedding. I mean, just absolutely every ounce of my being, all my hairs were on edge. It was just like, okay, it's, we're going to see this deer or we're going to spook this deer, but it's happening. Um, now, before we go any further, Jimmer, what did you think about this part of it? When when we slipped into this new mode, wh- what were you thinking about what I was doing? What were you thinking about the situation? Uh, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're describing it completely accurate. Um, I just, I don't, is it healthy to have your adrenaline that high for, <laughs> for as long <laughs> as we did that day? Yeah. I mean, we started the day off on such fresh tracks, and I felt like, like you said, I felt like we were 50 yards behind these deer all day but this specific moment i mean i when especially at this time i try to step when you step but boy that was that was some thick brush um but yeah it just felt like this was it we're there they're they're on this nice ridge overlooking as hal says looking back from where they came uh it, it had to be that moment yeah and with that kind of situation ended up lasting an hour i think at yeah. least at least an hour, if not more, because we kept on slow moving our way through this stuff. And then we come over a little like every little new area I could see every little rise we'd peek over. I kept thinking, like, we're going to peek over one of these bits and we're going to see a bed of deer. We're going to see a back. We'll see an ear twitching. We'll see a little mm-hmm. patch of white tail. We'll see an antler tine move in the sunlight. I just kept stopping and looking and glassing and thinking like anywhere here it's going to be. But we never came on them and they just kept we kept being on the tracks and they, they started doing the thing though, that again, they'd hooked up to the top. They came up this little knob. Now they were milling. They'd stop. You could see where they're feeding and nibbling and stuff. They were kind of spinning around milling. You could see one of the deer would kind of loop around the other and up and down and around in this little zone. And, um, it just, they kept doing that for quite a ways. I mean, for at least an hour, and I don't know how much time that was or how much distance that actually was. I would bet it was at least, I don't know, a couple hundred yards of that kind of behavior that we were like slow creeping through. Don't you think something like that, Jim? Yeah. And I, there was a, a many moments where we just had to pause and maybe even backtrack just to keep track of where their, their prints were going. Cause they were just kind of all over the place. Yeah. They'd loop and then we'd be like, Oh, did they just come back there? Yep. We were, and then we'd come back here and there. And, um, to, to, to go from there, basically that was like an hour long creep fest thinking we'd find him and, and never did until we finally went several hundred yards doing that two, 300, I don't know, 200 yards of that, something like that. And yeah. then, um, it kind of opened up a little bit more and I, they're still going yeah. and it started opening up. It wasn't as thick as it had been. I was thinking, man, are they just going to keep cruising? And probably just as I started having that thought, here's a bed, here's a big bed and it's fresh, like very fresh. And I realized, Oh, we just bumped this buck out of here. Um, and so then I'm thinking, well, we've already done a sandwich break. Now I've just bumped this buck a second time. And right as I did that, right as we bumped that deer, a snow squall moved through and it starts like (laughs) dumping snow on us. And I remember being unsure of what to do next because I thought, I remember the sandwich break rule, but at the same time, this is the second time. Does it, does it count in the second time or not? I couldn't remember that. And the second thing I thought is, man, if this snow squall 
keeps on going at this rate, will I lose the tracks? So I was torn. Should I sit? Should I keep going? Do I sit for a little while and then keep going? Um, what I ended up doing was we ended up stopping and we took a short break, like a 15 minute break. And then we picked it back up. Uh, Hal, what do you think about that piece of what we were doing there? Both my, my death creep mode there. And then secondly, my decision when it came to that second bump. Yeah, well, obviously you, you knew you had a, you had an idea he might be laying in there and he was. So that worked for you. You didn't see him, but it worked for you anyway. And then, um, I would have used, I wouldn't, cause I don't, like I said, I only stopped, take a break the first time. So I wouldn't have done that. Plus combined with the fact that it was snow squall and I'd have used a snow squall as my, my buck killing time. You know what I mean? It, it helps you out, you know, with it blowing yeah. around the snow and stuff, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Jimmer, why don't you tell me to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Just kicking myself right now. Yeah, could have used, used that nudge. Um, I needed the standards break, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Was good to have that break because that was really, I mean, that hour or two of creep mode. I mean, that yeah. was that was uh, excruciating. The level of attention to detail I was trying to put into our movements there. I mean, that was the sneakiest I've ever tried to be, probably for as long of a period of time and moving as slowly and like thick cover like that that I can remember. Um, I really thought like, this is going to be our one chance. This is it. Um, but that didn't happen. So we ended up getting back on the trail and trying to cover ground again. I remember seeing running tracks for a while. We could still follow it, even though it was snowing. And at this point I'm thinking, okay, he knows we're on him. This is the second time we bumped him. He's moving, and I kept thinking to myself, man, what would Hale do in this situation? I just I couldn't remember getting to this point in our conversations with you, Hale. We talked about if you bump a deer once. I didn't really know, what do you do when you bump a buck twice or three times? Like, what's how's this deer? Is this deer ever going to slow down and chill out, or is he just going to be really on edge the whole time, and I'll never be able to catch up to him? But I thought to myself, okay, we bumped him twice. I'm just going to push him at this point and, and try, to, try to get lucky. And so I was like, I need to cover ground take advantage of the snow and not lose the track. So we started moving faster at this point, like right back up to like full speed probably. And we, he went running down. If I remember right, he went running side hill on the ridge and then started going down the ridge and then side hilling more. And then he turned to go back down the hill and then looped slightly. Like it was like, it was downhill and then he started curving to the right and then boom, there's another bed. And he was out of that bed and you could, I mean, it was, it was, this was as fresh as you could possibly, possibly, I could still see like hair marks from where his tail had been laying in the snow. You could see like that level of detail. Right. So now I bumped him three times and, and now I'm, now I kind of feel like, is this a lost cause? Um, this buck's just running and running. And so we keep going and I just look back at Jim and I just said, man, we're just going to, we'll probably never see this buck, but we're just going to run him down. And we're just going to go and go and go. And I remember saying something like this. This reminded me of, I don't know if you've heard these stories, hell, but there's talk of some uh, like tribes in Africa and different parts of the world where they have historically done something called persistence hunting, where they would just run after an antelope or something. And they would run for hours and hours and hours and hours. And eventually humans uh, actually have an endurance advantage over 
a lot of animals that can't cool as well as we can in the middle of an event like that. And they would actually be able to run an animal to exhaustion and then, you know, be able to spear it or something like that. And I remember thinking, am I going to try to do a persistent persistence hunt on this buck and just keep going and going and going? And I, I mean, Jim, I remember you, I stopped at one point and you looked at me like, dude, you're just running in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I even it wasn't the uh, weren't his tracks pretty pretty like he was speeding up quite a bit at oh, this point. I mean, so. he was he was basically kept on running, and then I was like, well, yeah. we need to keep moving. So we we're I was just going as quickly as I could through the woods, just on him, and we just went and went and went and went. And yeah. in my head, I thought like, we're never going to see this deer. Like he he knows we're behind us, and this was my next point of indecision where I was like, okay, we bumped him three times. I don't see any, I I just couldn't imagine a scenario in which we could kill this deer. And I kept wondering is the, is the way to go to just keep going and going and going and hope to get lucky. And like, I'll just happen to come over a hill one time a little bit faster than he expects. And I get a sight of him. Like, do I need to hope for that luck? Or is there some other trick that Hale does, you know, that I don't know about yet that would allow me to get on this deer. Um, I remember reading about you doing like a loop around trick hail where sometimes you'll loop around ahead of a buck. And I was trying to think, you know, what's the scenario that I would do that? How could I loop around and try to get ahead of this deer? Is there, do I know this area well enough? And I just couldn't, I couldn't think through a way to do it in a way that would actually be useful without just being like a hail Mary in the dark. Um, so we just walked and walked and walked until finally it was almost the end of the day. My question to you, Hale, is after that third bump and this indecision I had at that moment, how would you have handled that? Is there any other trick in your bag of tools that you would have pulled out at this point? Or is it just walk, keep walking and hope to get lucky? Or is there something else? Well, there's two kinds of deer uh, habits that they do. Once in a while, I think it's about, I figure it's probably one out of ten you'll get these bucks. I call them runners and they will do that from the time you jump them the first time. But this one wasn't like that. So it's a little different situation, but sometimes you get a runner and that's what he, that's how he learned how to escape a coyote was he'd run for a mile and then just lay down and watch his track again. And if you jumped him again, he'd run another mile. Those bucks there are nearly impossible to kill on the track. Because they're going to just, they're going to just, they might just drop right in their track somewhere. They might run across an opening and just drop down and watch. So you never get an indication of where they, you know, that they might be laying down. You never get that because they just, they run and stop and lay down. It's almost impossible to kill those bucks like that, tracking them. Then, but, but you just got this buck frightened because you jumped him out of his bed again. And you you usually by running after them like that, you're not going to get them that way usually because they just wait when they see movement coming. Now they're not even going to let you do anything. When they see movement coming, they just take off again and keep going. On those, all I try to do on those is is um, I just try to go. It depends what they're doing when they run. If they're running, and they're usually that buck, if he runs, slows down, starts walking again, he's going to wait and look again. That's just almost always what they do. They're going to keep they're going to keep watching because they're alerted to something's after them. 
But all I'm doing is hoping that he makes the mistake once and stops where I in a place where I can see him first. So I don't run after him because I'm more I'm more looking a lot more now. Not that I'm going I don't like slow down to a creep, but I just go along. If he's running, I move along. Once he stops running again, I start going easy again because I know he's going to be there looking somewhere. And I'm just hoping I can catch him in the right place. And and the, I guess a, a good good example that you can see of that or anybody can is on that my Brutus film there on YouTube is that's all I did with that buck was I finally got his MO, what he would do. He would run, but he didn't run that far, and then he'd walk. And then when he would be like like quick walking, and then when he would start dragging his feet, that meant he was going to lay down. It took me a little bit to figure that out, but every time he'd drag his feet, he'd be laying there pretty close, watching back. So when I finally shot him, he had run down off this ridge for quite a ways. He just wanted to get out of there because I just shot at him. And he crossed the road again, the gravel road, and got down into some kind of mixed growth, some green and stuff. And then it got into kind of a thick thing. And then he started dragging his feet. So I said, he's going to be laying here somewhere. So I just started going easy. And he kind of cleared up the end of this he was in a little skidder trail and then he turned abruptly to the left and I didn't step out. I stopped and I just kind of peeked through the limbs of the spruce trees there and I could see him laying there looking back about 35, 40 yards, maybe 35 yards. And I just got my foot swung around and let him have it laying in his bed there. So if I'd have stepped out, I was just hurrying too much. He'd have just jumped up and took off again, right? Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I guess that's what you call catching him looking. You know, he was looking, but I just kind of, I anticipated that, and I saw him first. You know. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a, there's a certain artistry to knowing how to handle these different moments these like inflection points within a track job it feels like you know like what to do when you catch up what to do when you see these different behaviors how to handle different conditions i mean there's all these different little variables that uh i suppose just with time and experience you develop an intuition for how to deal with it um and you know uh, having not done it before i guess i can't feel i don't feel too bad that i didn't know some of these things but i do feel like Every one of these experiences you get will certainly change how you approach the next one. I could just see that even day after day. Like each day I'd go along and be like, okay, I, I better know how to deal with this. I, I, I kind of get what I'm seeing here. I understand this part. You could see that rapid accumulation of, of information happening real time. Yeah, and then the other thing you always got to remember, though, is they're all individuals, and they don't all do the exact same thing. So. Right. You got to try to key on, key in on what your buck that day is doing. What is a little thing that he might do that's different that 
that clues you to how you can uh, react to that. Yeah, it's a great I had uh, I had one of my books. I had a story in about this buck that for some reason, when he was going to lay down, he would he would abruptly turn off his track and take a couple of jumps and then then go lay down. So I just keyed in on that. And uh, I didn't end up shooting that buck. He, I knew he was laying down, and I circled this piece of woods that he was in, and he didn't come out, so I knew he was laying there, but I didn't have enough time to go back and hunt it. I mean, I didn't say go back, but I didn't have time to uh, do what it would have taken to get him because it was too late. I was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I had an hour to I had about five miles to get out of there, and I had about an hour left of daylight. So it was another one of them long walks out in the dark. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it seems like you could do this for nearly a lifetime and still sometimes be surprised by things and find something new. And I, I think that's what I liked about it, having done it, tried it, um, and and we're running out of time, so I'm going to – really fast forward through stuff because I didn't anticipate this taking as much time as it has. Uh, but you know, that day didn't catch up to that buck went out the next day. Didn't find a track until the last couple hours followed one, uh, never took us anywhere really. And that was it. You know, I, I, we did it. We gave it a good shot. I had a couple tracks to follow. I had one really good one that, you know, I thought we were, we could have pulled it off. So that was, it was really cool to be on that one and to be that, in the moment and feeling like he could be just ahead of us at any moment. Um, that was, that was absolute high point. Never did see one though. Um, and that was the trip. I, I remember one main thing at the end of it was that this one left me with like, a left me with, uh, like a, I don't, I don't want to say like an itch that I wanted to scratch, but like a, like a, a clawing desire to get back and pull it off was basically like this one. I didn't want this idea of this type of hunting to defeat me. I, I don't know if that's what I'm trying to say, but I want to figure out some way to do it. So, so, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm going to be back. I'm going to be trying this thing again in one way or another. Um, really quick. We just have a couple minutes before I actually have to run too, but Dylan final thoughts or impressions after having gone through all this and, and seeing this yourself real quick. I think I'm in the same boat as you in that I really want to see success in doing this, you know, whether that's behind the camera or, you know, someday getting to do it on my own, but, you know, just that feeling of following an animal and feeling like, you know, it by the end, you know, you follow it for so long, you feel like, you know, it's habits. To catch up to it and finalize, you know, close on it, I think is something that um, I look forward to trying again in the future. Yeah. What about you, Jimmer? I, th- I thought it was fascinating how fast time actually went. I mean, from first light to last, you're so involved in this mystery. Like Dylan says, learning the patterns of this deer, you've only you probably got only this day, this amount of light to figure out this person or this deer, the, this personality of this deer. Um, it's just amazing how fast the time went. Cause all of a sudden you're like, Oh my gosh, we're, we're an hour till sundown and we're still, it still feels like we are 50 yards from this deer. Yeah. That was something. Yeah. 
Uh, Hale, I, I just want to reiterate again what we said when we were down there with you, and I'll, I'll say to you every time I see you again, which is just thank you, thank you, thank you. Can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking the time to to walk around with us out there, to show us what you do, to, to teach us your ways. Um, it was an absolute blast. Um, and I guess I want to give you an opportunity here for people that want to learn more from you, who want to participate in your classes or read your books or watch your videos or anything, where should they go to find that stuff and to get more information? Well, you can find everything really at bigwoodsbucks.com and, uh, they want to watch any of the films on YouTube. It's the big woods box YouTube channel. Uh, the outfitter part of it, the, the hunts, uh, on the same website, big woods boxes, just as an outfitter tab there. To, and that, that has the classes on it too. You know, my, I do those in the spring. They're actually all booked for next spring, but, um, I'm just starting to book the hunts for next fall. You know, I'm getting the re- the return people booked in, then whatever I have for openings, I'll fill in with uh, with uh, new people and go from there. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, just a different way to do things. And like I said, I I tell everybody it's a it's a way of hunting. You either you either love the big woods or you hate it. There doesn't seem to be any in between. But uh, I ended up loving it when I first started doing it 40 years ago, 40-some-odd years ago. And going to hunt somewhere else now is, you know, like in rural farm country, I just can't seem to do it, you know. Well, I'm starting to understand where you're coming from, Hal. And uh, I hope that we can get on and do another one of these episodes next year or two years from now or whenever it is someday to uh to talk through my first successful track i am i'm counting on having that conversation with you someday down the road soon hell sounds good all right hell dylan jimmy everybody thanks so much for joining me for this one guys thank you all right thank, thank you very much all right and that is today's episode Hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you for tuning in. If you're still hunting, best of luck out there. Have some fun. Eat some venison. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.